Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33 this morning. Verses 22 through 33 of Ephesians 5. We're actually going to spend the next two weeks on this passage. And I hope that uh, as we teach through this passage on marriage, that we can kind of set aside some of our uh, predetermined notions, preconceived notions concerning this passage, even perhaps some teaching that you've heard on it, not because what I have to say is so much better or different, but I think it's just uh, bringing in the whole context of the book. A lot of times when this passage is taught, we don't have that option. So, so just encourage you as we pray that God would help us, that you would also pray along with me that God would open our hearts, open your hearts to hear his word anew this morning. So with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we come as people who many times think that we have things figured out, or even coming as people who think that we have you figured out. And that perhaps we don't need to come to your word with perhaps the same curiosity or even humility. But that we have got you solved and we just are looking for the next deeper thing in our faith. So Lord, as we come to this passage, one that is probably taught as many if not more than any other passage in your word. We pray that you would give us fresh hearts of understanding that you would open our hearts to hear and see your word not new and different because your word is timeless and the same, but that you would change us, that you would use your word to change us, your people, that we might be people who chase after your heart. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So as we come to this passage concerning marriage, I don't have any statistics on this, but my guess is that this passage is probably taught um, in more times throughout the year than any other passage cumulatively across the United States. Uh, Usually every big, particularly the big churches that kind of have these like series that they do, you know, they have a whole like multimedia presentation concerning these series they're most of the time they're going to have some sort of topical series each year concerning marriage and they're going to teach on this passage at some point because how could you not and most of the time you can guarantee that they're going to have a week of two and with a week or two in which they talk to the men of the church and a week or two in which they talk to the women of the church concerning these passages and when you listen to many of these pastors talk, they, they give sermons that bring in so many of the cultural stereotypes, particularly concerning the men of the church. And it's preaching like that that I believe that continues to perpetuate the wrong stereotypes. When the pastor stands in the pulpit and refers to his wife as the boss and kind of gets a nice chuckle out of everybody, It just continues to let men off the hook for being passive when it comes to their families. 
watch any sitcom or watch any commercial with a dad in it, and the dad is really just another child that needs cared for. And sadly, again, that pastor's word is meant to get a laugh, but really we are just deepening the divide that exists in our churches between the men and the women, husbands and wives, and even parents and children. There is a created order to things, and there is a created order that was destroyed by the fall. We're going to spend two weeks in this passage, and I'm going to come at it from a more expositional perspective rather than a topical perspective. Next week, we're going to look specifically at the applications that are inside of the marriage relationship, but today what I want to examine is the purpose of this passage in context, focusing our attention on the last few verses concerning Christ's relationship with the church. The reason I want to do this is because it will give us a better understanding for phrases like wife submits or wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wife like Christ loves the church. Without context, these phrases either become trivialized or culturalized into some sort of strange 21st century American amalgamation or they become the backbone of abuse and damage in marriage relationships, both of which, of course, are wrong. The best way to interpret Scripture continues to be, after all these years, is to use Scripture to interpret itself. So that's what we're going to do. As we look at this passage, I want to focus on three main ideas. First, Christ's relationship with the church. Second, Christ's love for the church. And then lastly, Christ's union with the church. So with that, let's look together at the text, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself its Savior, and is himself its Savior. Now as the, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So again, for us to fully understand the context here, we have to bring the whole book to bear on this text and understand where we're at in Paul's letter to the 
church in Ephesus. As I was stating earlier, so many times when you hear this passage preached, it's preached as some sort of topical study in some marriage weekend, and very little time is spent building the book's entire context and bringing it to bear. This isn't to say, of course, that this passage doesn't stand on its own. Of course it does, just as any one of God's words do. Yet, because of verse 22, in particular in our culture, we have some kind of initial revulsion to this. Wives, submit to your own husbands. We kind of come at it and we're like, ooh, that's not what I was hoping to see. And so I think that the best thing that we can do, the only thing that we can do, is come to this passage bringing the full context. Even if you go back to verse 21, what do you see? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Remember last week when we preached on that passage, we were, we were talking about how that is the, the, a bigger idea, part of a bigger idea, part of walking as children of light, walking with one another as Christians, speaking and even singing words of truth to one another, giving thanks together, submitting to one another. That is part of how we walk together as children of light. The examples I gave for this is the way that we handle the business of the church, for instance, with our government structure and how we shepherd one another, whether it be the elder shepherding the church or the general everyday care that we have for one another in this church. It's something I believe that this particular church excels at. And this is all out of reverence to Christ because he is our God and we are his covenant people. But there is more here. And it has to do with our, it has to do with our relationship before Christ because as the church is his bride and he is the faithful bridegroom courting his children since the days of bringing them out of Ur of the Chaldees all the way back in Genesis 12 to a land that he was going to show them. The picture of God being the husband of his covenant people, the people his bride. This is a common picture. As we look through the pages of Scripture, so much so that, that that has continued forward as we come to the New Testament, into Revelation, which we're going to look at in just a moment, where we read about the union between the church and the bridegroom Christ and the marriage feast of the Lamb. So with that, it would make sense that Paul, the apostle of our Lord and the mouthpiece of God for the people of God, would want to further communicate then our union with Jesus and our union with one another by using the example of our own earthly marriages. Our marriage on this earth demonstrates the relationship that God has with his people. We read this here in the end of Ephesians 5. But we know that things didn't stay that way, of course, the way that... uh, that it was supposed to be before the fall, before the ball, before the fall, there was a represented created order. The husband was at the head of the family. We even read that in the uh, catechism this morning that Adam represented his family. The wife was his helper and faithful companion. The creation under both of their feet as they filled the earth and subdued it. But of course, earth didn't remain that way. Rather than having harmony instead, we have what we read in Genesis 3. So turn with me to Genesis 3 because I think it serves as a great foundation for us, as it does so many times. Genesis 3 is probably well-worn in your Bibles. 
But I want to look specifically at verses 16 through 19 this morning. Because these verses are kind of the opposite of what I just said, that that man and woman were to live in harmony and that they were to fill the earth and subdue it, like literally have it under their feet. This is after their first sin. And to the woman, he said, verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And this next part is going to be really where we're going to focus a lot of our time to both today and next week because this represents kind of an upheaval of the created order. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and for dust and 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 you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So if you look at that this passage, everything that was right about the world is now turned upside down. Your desire shall be for your husband, or probably better interpretation is shall be against, or be Kind of, uh, kind of, we read this again in Genesis 4 where Cain has the same relationship with sin that is crouching at his door. This idea that there's going to be this power struggle in the home. This is going to be turned upside down. The wife will then attempt to lead and man will have to actively pursue leadership, but will probably get frustrated and where things are difficult and will lead to passivity, which is what we see so much in the world today. All the while, creation, rather than being subdued itself, attempts to subdue man until he returns to the ground from whence he came. Because of all of Ephesians has been about this undoing of the curse of creation, making those things that were dead in sin alive in Christ what we see in these verses then is how the Christian marriage should represent a return to Eden. Reversal of the curse of death brought by our first parents and reversed by the work of Christ. And we are given the perfect example of this with how Christ leads his people. And that's why I wanted to start there. First point, Christ's relationship with the church. Look with me again in Ephesians 5 verse 32. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Speaking of this idea of the marriage relationship between man and woman. I think to start, before we start talking about all the importance of this, we need to preface it with the way that Paul finishes it. He says that this mystery is profound. There's an obvious connection that is being made here between our marriages here on earth and the connection that Christ has to his church. If you read some of the older commentators, they go pretty deep with it, making connections all the way back even to the creation of woman from man and so forth. And I, but I think there are limitations. We don't need to go too crazy with it. But there is no doubt a link between what we understand about the marriage relationship and the relationship that God has with his covenant people. And the kind of relationship that God has with his people is one that is nourishing and cherishing. Look again at verses 29 and 30. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, 
just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his own body. You see this over and over again as we go through the text of Scripture. We read from Psalm 23 this morning that that read that speaks of the shepherd's role in our life, making us lie down in safe places and feeding not only our stomachs, but our souls as well. Ezekiel 34, God says of his people, I will feed them with good pasture. I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus comes among his people and what does he call himself? I am the good shepherd. And not only does he care for his sheep, but he says, I laid down my life for my sheep. As Todd read from John 13 this morning, that he washed the disciples' feet as a symbol of what he would be doing for them, the care that he had for his people. He did this and he came and he dwelt among us. The care again that he had for his disciples and so many others as you read through the gospel narratives in particular, as a shepherd tenderly cares for his sheep. But notice something else is going on here. And I think this is why so many skip this, because it is a difficult understanding. Verse 30, why does he do this? Why does he no why does he nourish and cherish us, the church? Because we are members of his body. This is the motivation for the kind of care and the nurture that we get. No one has ever hated their own flesh. Jesus showed this by caring for himself in caring for us. I think as a church, we want to regularly refer to ourselves as the body of Christ. We do this, but I think we have lost the meaning of this over the years because when we say body of Christ, we're referring to a group. Well, obviously we're talking about this group of people, but when Jesus refers to the body of Christ, he's referring to himself and we being a part of that. When he says his body, he says that he gave himself up for us, that he died for us, that he shows his love for us because he shows his love for himself. That brings us to the next point, Christ's love for the church. Bring us, let's look at verses 25 and 26. Husbands, love your wife or love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Gave himself up for her that he might cleanse her, that he might sanctify her. We know that Christ shows his love for us, that even while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. We quote that verse all the time here, but in this passage you see something a bit more. He didn't just give himself up that we might have eternal life. He did that, and that is wonderful. But he also did so that we might be sanctified, that we might be made holy. And this isn't something that we have to wait for in the ultimate sense. Yes, at one point in our lives when we go to be with him, we will ultimately be made perfect and made a holy, but it's something that is also happening to us in Christ right now. He intends, how do we know this is happening to us right now? Because he intends to present us to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He is preparing us for the wedding. In Christ, we are being made 
holy for the great marriage feast of the Lamb. And this isn't that we might earn a seat. We're not being made, we're not being sanctified in, so that we will be, have a seat with Him. We have been justified in Christ already. He has earned a seat for us. But so that we will sit there with Him, being prepared in splendor and majesty, not a wrinkle or spot on us. No one despises his own body. Again, as it tells us, he finishes what he started with each of us, making us alive and then making us new. Turn with me to Revelation 19, where we can read more about this. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 10. Revelation 19, you could probably read a lot more of this, but I'm just going to stick with these several verses here, 6 through 10. Then I heard what seemed to be like the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. The bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. for The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So here we have this picture of the people of God at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And they're awaiting the bridegroom. And sure enough, he comes in verse 11. And he comes riding on a horse. In the Jewish tradition, the wedding would happen when the bridegroom would finally come to pick up his bride and there would be a several days long party celebrating the whole thing. This marriage feast was a big part of it. The tension in this passage is wonderful because you have here gathered these invited guests who were also representing the bride of Christ ready for his coming. They were all ready. It was granted to her, we read. To clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then we read that the righteous deeds are the deeds of the saints. And so what's fascinating about this is something that we've already read in the book of Ephesians. That not only do we have the righteousness of Christ, but we were created in Christ for good works that we might walk in them. As a part of our sanctification process, we are being made ready for this marriage feast of the Lamb. The idea that he gave himself up for us that he might sanctify us. That we might start getting ready for this marriage feast of the Lamb. This should be exciting for us as believers. And I think this is an important part for us to jump off for a little bit. Because I want to challenge you all as a church with something. Considering the context of what we just read. That he did this for us, that he might sanctify her. Isn't this also talking about the relationship that a husband should have with his wife? 
begin considering what this looks like then in our marriage. We'll look at the specifics next week of this, but begin thinking about it now. Because this isn't going to be found in any portion of our culture's views on marriage. What would it look like in a marriage where the husband's role is to present his wife blameless? What does it look like for her to submit herself to this process? It's definitely not what fallen men and women would do, right? We know that. Because we read what happened in the fall. Your desire is to rule over him. And his desire is to rule over you. And there's going to be this power struggle in the home. The created order is on its head. And the woman wants to rule. And the man gives up. And lets her. And is not going to be present. As much as possible. If you think this is taking the metaphor a bit far, what does Paul say in verse 28? In the same way, husbands, you should love your wives with your own bodies or as your own bodies. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it. They cherish it. They want to present it without spot or wrinkle. And what about for children? Just keep reading. Children, verse verse 1 of chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. The whole family of God is involved in this. The family structure all the way to the children. Obey your parents so that it might go well with you in the land. The family structure ordained by God is for the sanctification of all those therein. That doesn't mean that it cannot happen outside of that construct, of course. Jesus can do as he pleases. He is the ultimate worker of this sanctification in our lives. But the, but that process, the structure and order of each member of the family is to bring about the sanctification of the whole. And understand how this matches up with the rest of the teachings of the book of Ephesians, because we've already been studying this. The picture of the family is just a picture of God's whole family. The whole church. Look with me at Ephesians 4, 15, and 16 again. And under and, and read this in the context of what we just read in chapter 5. 4, 15, and 16. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with each with which it is equipped when when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The intent of all this structure is the sanctification of the whole. Christ did not leave his body out to dry when he left, but he left us his spirit. The spirit of God works in each of us to bring about this great work. And that's the reason it can happen. Because we are all united together. We are all united in Christ. And that brings me to the last point, Christ's union with the church. Look with me again at verses 31 and 32 of Ephesians 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Verse 31 is quoted several times in the New Testament. 
It's from Genesis chapter 2, the original teaching and instruction concerning marriage that we have in God's Word. When the husband and wife are married, marriage represent two things that were formerly separate under separate heads of the family, and now they're creating their own unit. These two things are becoming one. Each person represents a father and mother having been over them before, but now they are coming together, leaving their father and mother and uniting together as one. We've all heard this idea of leaving and cleaving. This is exactly where it comes from. We cleave, and then cleave in this sense means to join together, or as the ESV translated, to hold fast taking two things that were once separate and making a permanent seal between them, making one thing. We've heard this. Jesus quotes it when referring to marriage. God gave it to Adam and Eve in the garden. But here we are told that this marriage, this idea of marriage isn't just a union between two people, but the mystery is profound as this union points to the union that Christ has with his church. That he would leave the Father in heaven. That he would come down and give himself up for his bride. That he would even lay down his life. That she would be joined to him. That the two might become one. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is why marriage is not trivial at all. This is why marriage isn't just something that we do on a whim. This is why the structures and parameters of marriage that Scripture teaches are so important. Because it represents something much bigger than our desires and our whims. It represents the relationship that God has with His covenant people for all time. When we say that we have union with Christ, the two, Christ and His people, have become one. We have the very righteousness of Christ because we are one with Christ. We are called joint heirs with Jesus because we are one with him. We are in Christ. He is in us. And it's why, brothers and sisters, when we come to this supper together, when we come before the table of our Lord, it's why it's so important. It's a sacred event because there really is a holy communion that is taking place between the people of God and and their Lord, as those two became one. And it's why we also say that if you aren't in Christ, that this isn't for you. The elements are meaningless to someone who hasn't joined with Christ. It'd just be like taking someone else's wedding band and putting it on your own finger. That symbol symbolizes something else. It symbolizes the symbol between those two people, not anyone who puts the sign on. It's a symbol that points to something that is real and binding. If you're in Christ today, hear this, because as we come together next week to talk about marriage, all of this that needs to be bringing in your ears about what we talked about, our union with Christ, we cannot talk about Christian marriage without talking about the Christian's union with their Savior, Jesus Christ. This is why, understand this, this too, this is why it's so foreign for a Christian to marry a non-Christian. It doesn't make any sense at all for, for a Christian who's united in Christ to marry a non-Christian who is an enemy of Christ. 
It makes no sense. So Christians, I strongly encourage you over this week to study this passage, to pray for understanding of this great mystery that we have. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, I want you to hear this as well. To be a part of this great union, you only need to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Scripture says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But for those of us who are in Him, let us under, let us endeavor to understand this mystery more and more so that our families will be blessed to the praise and glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, pray just that now for us, Your people, that You would help us in this coming week to understand this mystery, this this profound mystery. That as we understand the union that we have with our Lord Jesus, that, that that would in turn help us to understand our marriages, help us to understand even for those who aren't married, their future marriage, to help all of us understand the importance of the family of God in God's economy. Lord, help us to understand your word that we would submit to it, that we would obey the things that you've written for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.